Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we are in episode 16 of Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. And there is only a little bit of time left to take advantage of the RAIN Biology Program. What does that have to do with Messianic Prophecies? Absolutely nothing at this juncture. But I do want to let you guys know there's still room to take advantage of that trip if you want to get on it. The deadline for it is February 28th. So get your applications in, get your deposits in. There are some limited scholarships available um, if that is a concern or if that is the thing that's hanging up. But we are set to go this year with that trip. So um, to get more information on that, you can go to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology or just go to the website and hit the events tab and you'll see it right there at the top of the events. So with that taken care of, let us I don't really have much for you guys to tell you about the lesson today because it's just more Messianic prophecies. We're over halfway through. Michael was telling me the other day, Charlotte, there's only a few lessons left. So we're like, yes, we're getting to the end of the series. Um, and then we'll be able to launch season two, which cool things to look out for that. Um, all right. So without further ado, here is episode 16 of Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament with Michael Lane. Hello and welcome to Evidence for Faith, uh, our podcast on uh, Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. So glad you're joining us today. This is lesson number 16 total now that we're, we're going through. And we're finally out of the book of Psalms. We're coming into the book of Isaiah. And yeah, we're skipping a couple here. But um, again, we're just covering the major messianic prophecies, not all of them. Uh, there's over 200, uh, 250 or so um, of prophecies. We're just looking at the major prophecies and of Jesus Christ, how they were foretold uh, hundreds, thousand years before he ever came and walked the earth, as recorded in the four Gospels. And as we get into this lesson today, I'm so excited to get into this one because this one is really cool. Uh, one of the lessons we're going to talk about today, there's, there's a few we're going to do, but... Um, one of them is going to be it's it's going to be the second one we're going to do today. Um, but ooh, I can't skip this first one first. We got to do this one first. But Isaiah, just to let you know, Isaiah is one of the most useful books written to proclaim Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, this book is has a lot of prophecies in it and some major prophecies. Um, many that are quoted frequently in sermons. You find them also in Scripture, in the New Testament. Um, when, when the events happened, they, they would mention these and quote them. So the Holy Spirit allowed this prophet, Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years before Christ, to be able to foresee things concerning the coming Messiah. Um, and most people are familiar with the, the passage in chapter 53. It's read many times um, at, at certain times of the year and stuff. But there are some other ones in here. Now, some going to be sort of new maybe to you. But um, we're going to get into this, this first one. Might be one that you're not really that familiar with. But the second one you will know. But we're on, um, as we've been going, we're going to be doing um, these in, in order. Um, and we're in number 53 right now. So if you're keeping track, if you have a notebook and you're keeping track of these, well, we're at number 53. And we're in Isaiah. It's chapter 4. 
Um, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 6. And I just called this one, the, the subtopic for this one is called the branch. The branch. So let's get started with this. And as I've been saying all along through these, we're doing the English Standard Version. That's the Bible version that we're using. It's a word-for-word -word translation. And since we're getting into the wording on things, I want to use a word-for-word -word translation as opposed to a thought-for-thought. -thought. So that's why I use, because people ask me sometimes, why are you, you know, are you making so much use of the English Standard Version? Are you getting a kickback or a commission for it? No, it's just... It's a word-for-word -word translation. It's a little um, lower in readability than a New American Standard or, say, an interlinear Bible. It's a very popular Bible today, and that's why I'm using this. So as we go along, this is Isaiah chapter 4, verses uh, 2 through 6, and it reads, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstain of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day, and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. For all of the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, you, as you read this one and you follow along with this, you can see there's a lot of correlation here going back to the Exodus and um, the flame during the, the day. And there's, there's smoke also. And it talks about a booth, them living in shelters and stuff as they were out there in the heat of the day. There, there's a lot of things that deal with that. But this is specifically messianic. And we know that because of how this thing even starts out. <clears throat> and though this passage can mean, as we've said, many prophecies have, have a dual meaning. There'll be a very superficial one for the present time, but then it has deeper meaning dealing with the Messiah later on. And this is one of these, but it gains so much. I mean, we, we, we can see so easily that this is dealing with the Messiah because of the word branch. Branch. Branch is one of the messianic titles, and it's a name, in other words, for the Messiah. So this is dealing with the Messiah. That's why it's so easy to see this one is that way. Um, and it's talking about his future kingdom, because a lot of this is having to do, actually, this prophecy, a lot of it deals with the the. Um, prophecies coming in the future, eschatology, uh, end time prophecies here about how the um, the Jews will be gathered basically into the church is what this is talking about. Um, it gets into parts of the tribulation and then after the tribulation. So it gets into a lot of that. And um, But that's not what our key thing here. There was two things that really stand out where it mentions the branch. And then it also, in verse four, it says, the Lord shall wash away the filth. Now that that is definitely, since it's talking about the Messiah washing away filth, this is de dealing, I believe, with 
the crucifixion, how Jesus washed away our filth. I mean, we even have hymns that, that's taken from this, this passage dealing with the Messiah doing this. But the other aspects of this are future points. But here it was talking about what the Messiah is going to do. This branch, when he comes, he's going to wash away our sins. Um, and in this case, specifically, he's talking about the sins of of the Jews who will be added to the church later on. But that's having to do with end time prophecy. But that's number 53. It was a very, very quick one, not too much to it. And now we get to my one of my favorite ones of all time. Oh, this, this is so cool. And you've heard this one. Every Christmas time, you hear this red. This is number 54. So if you're keeping count, we're at number 54. And it is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And I entitled this, you probably can guess it, The Virgin Birth. A lot of people have memorized this verse. Um, and if you've ever heard or ever wondered, I guess I should say, of where it is foretold about the Virgin Mary giving birth to the Messiah, look no further. This is where you get it from. This is where it's found. And as you know, probably many of you could probably quote this. Um, here it is um, from the English Standard Version. It reads, the Virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. There you go. This is one of the, the most amazing uh, verses talking about the coming Messiah. Uh, it is also, I'm going to point out to you right now, this is also arguably the most controversial verse in the entire Bible. Um, it has been a focal point for use by skeptics to downplay Jesus as the Messiah. And it has become a tool, I'm sad to say, that liberal pastors uh, who claim that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, they go to this verse and use this. And it, it, it's so sad because what they're doing, they're taking things out of context here. And we're gonna, I'm gonna show you another trick here. Uh, we've talked about it before, but I'm gonna come back to it and show you how not to take things out of context. But um, so we're, we're talking about this very important and very vital piece of prophecy dealing with the Messiah. Now, a few things we're going to talk about here. First of all, in some translations, depending upon what translation you commonly use in your Bible studies or you read on your own and stuff like this, the word virgin may be replaced by the terms young woman. The Revised Standard Version, when it was um, published, uh, <laughs> It had this in there, and it was condemned by many, many uh, evangelical uh, churches. I mean, they just, okay, you know, this, is, this is too far. We can't do that. Um, but they, they, they did it. And there are some other translations that have young woman instead of the word virgin. Now, <laughs> I'm a biologist, and I can tell you there is a major difference between a virgin and a young woman. There is a difference here. Now, Whenever you get confused on things, and in this case here, we have even liberal pastors saying Jesus wasn't born of the Virgin Mary and stuff. Well, um, and skeptics say that this never happened and things. Well, whenever you get into a situation where somebody's really questioning something in Scripture, what you want to do is always go back to the uh, oldest manuscripts and see what it was in the, the older language. Like um, one aspect you can do if you go to um, like a... Uh, a website or something, if you do not own a, a 
interlinear Bible. Many people don't. If you go to something like, say, uh, www, um, Bible Hub, that's H-U-B, BibleHub.com, um, you can see a bunch of translations there. It's free. You can download this app on your phone. No, I'm not getting a commission for this. But you can download the app on your phone. And it gives you access to many commentaries and also it gives you access to many dictionaries, atlases, and everything for free. And one of the things that I love about BibleHub.com is they give you um, the Septuagint, which is the Greek. Now, if you don't read Greek, it's not going to help you much. But um, they also give you the interlinear Bible. And if you type in at the top where it is, and it's um, for Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It'll come up in whatever translation it is, but then you can click on an icon there uh, for the interlinear Bible, and you will see uh, the Strong's numbers. You will see the, the Greek, I'm sorry, the Hebrew in this case, the Hebrew words and the pronunciations and everything are right there. This is a, a very useful program. It's very easy to use, too. So, I always say, when in doubt, go back to the original languages. Go back to the Hebrew Chaldean or to the Greek. And a lot of times you can find problems solved just by looking at what words were being used. Now, as I said, um, the actual word here used in the ancient manuscripts, going back to the Hebrew, is the word alma. Alma, which can mean maiden, a maiden. It can mean a young woman. Thus, that's why the revised standard version, not the English standard, revised standard version, put this in there. But it can also mean virgin. Now, as one scholarly person said to me once, if this was meant to mean virgin, there's a better Hebrew word to use, uh, Bethula, which is used a number of times in the Bible also, particularly in um, the Pentateuch, it is used, and it specifically does mean virgin. And when they when this person was saying this to me, I, I, I agreed. I said, you, you're absolutely correct that um, Bethulo is a better word for, for just meaning a virgin. But if you study this word, Bethula, you will see its root meaning actually is to be ripe sexually, ripe sexually, and not meaning to be betrothed. That's the root meaning of that word. And um, Unger, in his commentary on this of the Old Testament, he, he goes into a long explanation on this, also explaining how this all works. Um, so when it's used in the Old Testament, as Unger shows in his commentary, it's being used in Deuteronomy and in other passages, Joel and stuff, where you see that word being used. Um, it's, it's not talking about the same thing as Alma. Alma and um, Bethula are not synonyms. They are not meaning the exact same thing, though um, just by a quick glance it appears, oh, virgin in both, so it could be either one. But no, um, it means to be ripe sexually, Bethula, and uh, Alma is talking about a young woman who is betrothed, who's a virgin. Uh, now, if you recall in the Christmas story, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. So it is the correct word to use here. So... Um, which one is it? Should it be Bethula? Should it be Alma? Alma is the one that fits best. But let, let's go um, to another part.
about, you know, should it be Alma or something like that? Well, let's go back to the opening paragraph. Let me show you something fascinating that a lot of people, they skip on this. Now, again, whenever you get into a situation where someone is pointing out a, an apparent contradiction in the Bible, go back to the original language. If you don't see the answer there, and a lot of times that clears it up right there, but if not, the next thing you want to do and this is good with a revise, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, the interlinear Bible, or to go to a new American Standard Bible, because what you want to do is see what is the the uh, oldest manuscripts. What do they have as the paragraph that the verse that seems to be in question is sitting in? Where is this verse in this case here, Isaiah 7:14? What in, in in the paragraph it sits in? What is the opening sentence or the thesis or topic sentence of that paragraph? Because that tells you then, just in, this is something you learn in, in middle school English, whenever you have a paragraph, the first sentence is the topic sentence. We, depending upon where you grow up in the United States, it might be called the thesis sentence. Now, what that means is, and we've all had this in school, means every single sentence following that first one pertains to that first sentence. Now, when you're writing a sentence that no longer pertains to that first sentence of the paragraph, you start a new paragraph because now you've, you're starting a different topic, a different thesis. And so the, uh, the sentences after that pertain to that second one. So in this case here, the paragraph that Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 fits into begins in verse 10 and 11. 10 and 11 basically is one sentence, and this is the topic sentence going on. So let me read that to you to help you understand part of this conflict here about what's going on. And it reads, Isaiah 7 verse 10 and 11, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, what's going on here? I mean, what's this mean? If that's the topic sentence. Now, don't, don't lose that. This is the topic sentence. God is speaking to King Ahaz, and he's telling Ahaz, ask me for a sign for me to prove something. So what's happening, if you go back and you read further in this and uh, to find out what's been going on um, in chapter 7 here, King Ahaz, he's not the greatest king. Matter of fact, he's one of the bad kings. Um, he's, uh, there's an invasion that's happened to Judah, his kingdom. But God's telling King Ahaz not to worry, uh, for he will do a miracle to help his faith. Ahaz lost his faith in God. God at this point is saying, hey, ask me for a miracle and I'll give you a miracle to show you that I'm the true God, that I, what I say is true. So he's saying, I'm going to give you a miracle. So God's talking about a miracle. Um, and what's a miracle? Well, a miracle is something that is against the natural laws of science and nature. It just doesn't seem to happen. Now, if this was to mean, if Isaiah 7, 14 uh, a virgin be with child, give birth to a son, call him Emmanuel. If this just means an ordinary birth of a person, um, of some young woman giving birth to a child, that's not a miracle because women give birth to children every single day. That is not a miracle. It happens every day. But, so if it's just a young maiden giving birth, that's not a miracle. But if it's a virgin giving birth, 
that's a miracle. That doesn't happen every day. That would be a miracle. Thus, this prophecy from God given to Isaiah, and Isaiah's writing this down, is dealing with a miracle, not a common everyday occurrence. Thus, the word Alma is the correct word to be used here of someone who's betrothed, yet a virgin yet, and yet she gives birth. That's what this is actually meaning. So another piece of this, um, for this, that, that Alma is the correct one found here, and that's what it really means, is this always refers to a virgin girl. Always. Somebody who is sexually um, capable of producing a birth, but she has never been with a man um, at this point. She, uh, and, and Mary hadn't, if you recall. She had not. So that's why... Um, so that's why Alma is the better term for this. So, um, I mean, if that's the way it's used throughout the Bible, how Alma is used throughout the Bible, why would this passage be different? Because that's how Alma is used all the time. It's talking about a virgin. So if a virgin is giving birth, hey, folks, going back to the thesis sentence of this paragraph, God says, let me show you a miracle. This is a miracle. That's what it is. But, but there's more here. More evidence that I can give you that this is really what this means, that a virgin is going to give birth. Now, take you back a little bit um, in history before the time of Christ. You get around the second century BC, about 70 or 72 Jewish scholars are translating the Tanakh, the Old Testament, into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. You can buy copies of it. I have a copy right here uh, beside me on my desk right now. Um, and here's the Septuagint. And the Septuagint um, records uh, the word in question that we're talking about here, because it's got the the Septuagint contains the book of Isaiah. It has the chapters seven, uh, chapter seven, verse fourteen. But now it's written in a different language. It's in Greek. Now, Greek is a really peculiar language. Not, oh, I shouldn't say peculiar. It's very exact, actually. It's a great language. It's very definitive on when it uses words and stuff. So, the 70, 72 Jewish scholars in translating Isaiah, his, his uh, book of prophecy, from Hebrew into Greek, and when they get to the word, what here is appearing as virgin, they record the Greek word parthenos. Parthenos. What does Parthenos mean in Greek? Guess what? It means virgin. Yes, Parthenos. You probably have heard this word before or a form of this word. Um, it's the same Greek word used for the famous Parthenon that you find in Greece, the temple to uh, the goddess Athena, who, according to Greek mythology, was a virgin. So it's the word that's used for virgin. And I do not think that it can refer to anything else here than a young virgin woman who has had no sexual relations with a man. And, and we're talking about the Septuagint here, that a young virgin who's never had sexual relations with a man is going to produce a child. A bona fide virgin is going to give birth. So we see this in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was the Bible that they were using at the time of, of Christ. Um, and like I say, it was a very popular Bible. Paul quotes out of it frequently and stuff. So this is the, the Bible of the, the day at, boy, at that point. But the thing is, it's a Greek translation. And 
Greek uses the word virgin. There's no question about it. We can't say young maiden here. Young maiden, that's different in Greek. So it's got, it's, has Parthenos, this is definitely the word for virgin. Uh, but, you know, um, we're still not done with this. There's even more evidence to suggest this. Because the angel, Gabriel, specifically told Mary that she was going to give birth to a son. What was Mary's response? Well, how can this be? It's impossible. I, I've never been with a man. And, you know, Mary uh, says this to, to Gabriel. Gabriel, you know, says, says, well, yeah, normally that is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. So here again, we see this because it says in Matthew 1, 23, behold, the virgin, this is what Gabriel says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And again, we've got the word virgin. And since Matthew's gospel is written in Greek, what word does it use for virgin? Guess what? Parthenos. It's the word that's used here. He is, Gabriel is quoting the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and he is specifically giving us the specific term virgin, Parthenos. Now, some skeptics will say, well, there's another problem with this verse. Okay, let's, let's just move on with this verse. There's another part that's a problem, they say. It says uh, in this verse that his name shall be called Emmanuel. Well, uh, skeptics have said this to me. They said Jesus was never referred to as Emmanuel in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they call him Jesus all the time, or, or one of the Messianic titles, uh, Son of Man, Son of David, etc., etc., but they don't call him Emmanuel. So your Bible's got a problem. Well, yeah, skeptics and stuff, they, they will use this. Jesus was never called that. After all, um, he, he wasn't. He wasn't referred to as Emmanuel in the Gospels. That is true. So what they're saying is, is correct. He is not called that directly as a proper name. I mean, because the, the name Jesus actually is the Hebrew name uh, Joshua, and it means basically, well, literally, it means Yahweh, uh, Yehovah, probably better, uh, Yehovah is salvation. Salvation is Yehovah. And so that's what this is talking about. Now, Emmanuel is from two Hebrew words, Immanu. Um, which means with us. Yep, that's what it means, with us. Um, so in this case, what are we talking about? The humanity, with us, with mankind. That's what this is referencing. Imanu, with mankind. So uh, the, the Messiah, when he comes, will be with mankind. That's part of it. But also, it has el, Imanu, and then the suffix el. El means God. It's actually a short form of the word Elohim. Elohim is the name for God. It's used uh, during the creation account and stuff like this. So that is the name, of, uh, one of the names of God, Elohim. El is the shortened version of it. So we have with us, God is what Emmanuel means. Now, as you're trying, trying to figure this out, what's going on here? Because Jesus is never actually called that. Well, this use... In this passage here, in Isaiah, of what, uh, and even Gabriel quoting it, and call, saying that they will call his name Emmanuel. Um, Emmanuel is um, an appellative, an appellative. In other words, it's, it's a, another word for or relating to the noun is what this is. Um, Jesus is his proper name, but the appellative of this can be Emmanuel. 
Um, so it's a shortened related word to describing that now. And that's what Jesus was, because he was literally God in the flesh with us, dwelling with us. Uh, he tabernacled right with us. And John makes this extremely clear in his first chapter of his gospel. But Jesus um, is saying, and when we, when we say the name Jesus, we're actually saying that God is salvation. And God, I mean, the whole point of Jesus, the, what was this? God dwelling with man. So it's not that he would be used, the, he would be called the proper name. It's an appellative of his name and, and who he is, that he is God dwelling with us. And that's how this is. And that's why Jesus came to save us. And do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him that way? And if not, I, I hope you understand that this miracle, this prophecy and this miracle is so important because Christ had to come to die for mankind. Thus, he had to be part human. And that was Mary's role because she being human, Jesus is human. He's actually 100% human. Bible tells us he cried. He had emotions. He even bled blood, um, human blood and stuff. But he was also 100% God. He was Elohim in the flesh. So that's who he was. And he had to do that because he had to, to he came to die for mankind and of the human race. So he had to be part human. No, no, he's totally human. He had to be human to die for the human race, to represent the human race. But no one person can die for the sins of everybody because they are sinful themselves, an ordinary person is, and has to die for their own sin. No, it would take a God, a perfect being, to become uh, able to take all the sins of the world upon themselves. Only God could do that. Thus, Jesus had to be both God and man totally together and that's exactly what jesus is and that's why this passage this prophecy in isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is so important well that was number 54 let's let's go quickly here to 55 um just to wrap this up here today so number 55 is isaiah chapter 8 and it's verses 17 and 18 and in, uh, i'm calling this one waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. And it reads, um, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I don't see a messianic meaning in this one. And to be honest, we would probably not catch it had it not been for, again, the writer of the book of Hebrews. How many times have I said that? with all these Old Testament prophecies. It was the writer of the Hebrews that pulls these things out and makes them obvious to us. Because the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, quotes this passage in chapter two, verse 13. He says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So this is pertinent to us today to place what? Our trust and our hope in the Messiah. This is who's being referenced here, into the Messiah. We place our hope and we place our trust. Um, and too often, though, we try to put God on a timetable, do we not? Um, when, we, when we really need 
to to trust him and and be on his timetable. Um, there's there's more to the, to this prophecy. That was just verse 17. Verse 18 reads, "Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and uh, portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion." Now one can hear almost literally the Messiah speaking to his church that he is adopted. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the church is born, the bride of Christ. And it's talking about this, that this was going to happen. There would be a church church that would form. And this is being used uh, in this context. So this passage tells us that Jesus would be given children. And who are his children? Fallen man. It's us, fallen man. And what's his purpose? To bring them back closer to God, the Father. That's the purpose. And that's why Jesus came. Isn't that cool? Like I say, we would have missed it had it not been for the author of the book of Hebrews. We probably wouldn't have caught it. But under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he realized and was told this is a prophecy that pertains to the to the Messiah and um, saving fallen man and forming his church. That's what that's talking about. Well, we're out of time on this one today. Um, I know this was a little shorter than some of the others, but the next one we're going to get into is huge and a very important one. And I, we don't have time to go into that one right now. So um, uh, we're going to sort of uh, end at this point, but I do want to, again, just thank you for listening and hope you um, are enjoying these podcasts. Uh, I want to thank you. I got a great email this morning from someone who has been listening, and um, boy, it's just all of us in our ministry were really touched by this person's comments um, about how he has enjoyed these and that he's even sharing uh, our podcasts and stuff with friends and telling friends, hey, get into this. This stuff is really, really good at teaching us. And uh, and not just these lessons, but our video lessons and our other things. And we thank, thank people like this so much. It's so important. For one, it encourages our heart and helps us to, to stay focused on what's true. And we'd love to hear from you too. And if you can, um, please pray for us that we would, all of us on staff would have good health and that we would be able to continue doing these, these things and pray also for uh, the continued ministry of Evidence for Faith. Um, if God leads you to support us, that's um, how we run this ministry. We run on support of people, um, not inflating salaries or anything. It's just we're just doing this to pay for these lessons and, and get this stuff out because God gives us salvation free. I don't want to charge people to hear the word of God. That's why we do almost everything for free. And that requires then people to jump on our ministry and help pay for the things. And that's what we're looking for here. So if God, you know, if God puts it upon your heart to help us, that'd be great. If, if he puts it upon your heart just to pray for us, hey, that's great. We need prayer too. And in the meantime, thank you so much. We really enjoy it um, that you're, you're spending time with us and take care. Until next time, and may God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.